getting any better. But I'm going to work on work so much that I have no time for my family. I grow up, I want to have no goals, no vision, and no purpose. change in our lives from what we want to do and be when we're young. Mr. Brody didn't ask me to, uh, to take part in the video, but uh, I just want to share with you when, uh, when I was a younger, a lot younger than I am, uh, I wanted uh, to go into archaeology. Interesting. History really uh, was something that, that interests me, uh, something that um, really the only subject in school that I was good at. And of course, I'm a pastor. But when I was in seminary, I took a class on biblical archaeology. And I realized that every day that I study God's Word, that I'm doing what I thought I wanted to do as a child. When we talk about God's plan, we talk about it as, as, as children, we have these dreams and these uh, 
visions of the future. And then as we get older and older and older, and we begin to, to make different choices and go down different <coughs> paths, sometimes we're completely uh, off of our original thought process. Most often, I think, one of the problems that we have is that we make our own plans for the future without considering God's plan and purpose for our lives. And last week, we began a series of messages on God's plan for you. We learned that God's plan is all-inclusive. It's all-inclusive because God does nothing part-time. He is always all-in. And in that message, trying to learn about God's plan and, and, and understanding what it means that God's plan for you and for me is all-inclusive, we learned that even though our life can be confusing, that God knows His plan, and He understands the plan that He has for us. We also learned that His plans are eternal, meaning that He thought of us even before we existed. We learned that his plans are continual. They're continual because He is always thinking of what is best for us. And we also learn that His plans are settled. They're not settled because He's stubborn. Because He makes a plan and sticks to it. They're settled because they're solid. Because they're good. And we've been examining this passage, a familiar passage in Jeremiah chapter 29, so if you'll turn there with me, I want us to continue examining this passage of Scripture, verse 11 in Jeremiah 29. I want to today key in on a couple of phrases for our message, but I want us just to look at, at this passage, Jeremiah 29, 11. We Last week examined the, the context of this particular passage. Most of the time when you see this verse of Scripture, uh, it's on its own. It's there and, and, and it leaves us sometimes with uh, a tendency to translate it into our personal context. And the Bible is always relative to where we are. But in order to understand a passage of Scripture, we have to first understand it within the context in which it is. And so we learn that, that God gave this promise to the nation of Israel prior to a 70-year exile in Babylon. Prior to the nation's temple being destroyed, the city, their home being destroyed. And so we have this context of Jeremiah 29, 11. The prophet speaks 
this prophecy from the Lord to His people. So verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. The phrase I want us to key in on today and to examine is the two phrases actually. The plans for your welfare, not for disaster. <coughs> plans for your welfare, not for disaster. In this particular passage, in this phrases, God gives us two words, I think, that, that we can take to the bank in terms of the nature of His plans for us collectively as a church, as the body of Christ, but also individually as followers of Jesus Christ. And, and so what I want to do is I want to contrast these two words that the Lord proclaims and promises to His people, and then I want to offer an application. So first of all, we can see that His plans are for your well-being. You say, duh. I mean, God is good, isn't He? So of course He's going to, His plans are for my well-being. Well, how many times have you ever met someone who had something happen to them and their first reaction was to blame God. How many of you have ever had something happen to you and your first tendency is to blame God? Most of us probably have. Most of us probably have. So we need to understand this. We need to understand this foundational principle about our lives from God's Word. His plans for you. His plans for me. His plans for us are plans for our well-being. When the prophet Jeremiah spoke these words of the Lord to the nation of Israel prior to their exile in Babylon, he used the Hebrew word shalom. This word describes the nature of God's plan for them and for us. Now in the translation that I'm using, the word shalom is translated with the English word welfare. Now, in our context, in our culture today, that, that word can bring in a, a, a different meaning. Government welfare, it's a, in a sense a negative connotation. So, I chose to use well-being. Your translation may use the word peace, which is often the word associated with this Hebrew word shalom. But others, other translations use the word prosper. As a matter of fact, shalom, the, the, the Hebrew word is used three times in verse 7. And the translation that I am using translates it three different ways. Welfare, 
prosper and prosperity. Now, this, this is not pointing out an inconsistency, but it simply means that in the English language, there is more than one word used to describe the meaning of the word shalom. For the purpose of this message, what I want to do is I want us to try to get a full picture. A full picture of what this word means. To get a full picture of what God wanted the nation of Israel to understand about the nature of His plans for them. As I said before, most often shalom is associated with the idea of peace, which is actually an English word that, that derives from the same idea. Do you know what that English word is? Salem. It's exactly right. Salem. When we hear the word peace, we usually associate this to mean the absence of war or strife. But it's important to note that the Hebrew meaning of the word shalom is a bit different. You see, the, the, the verb form of the root word is shalom. And it usually means making restitution. So, so here we start with this idea of peace, this idea of well-being. When in actuality the word derives from a verb that means to make restitution. When a person has caused another to become deficient in some way, such as the loss of livestock, it is the responsibility of the person who created the deficiency to restore what has been taken, lost, or stolen. This is the context in which God communicated to the nation of Israel that my plans for you are for shalom, for restoration. The verb shalom literally means to make whole again. It means to make complete again. The noun has a more literal meaning, being in a state of wholeness with no deficiency. The common phrase, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, is not speaking about the absence of war, though that is a part of it, but that Jerusalem, and by extension, all of Israel, and by another extension, the church, and by another extension, you and I, that we are complete, that we are whole, and that goes far beyond just having peace. When you and I think about the context of this promise from God to the nation of Israel and the reality of 70 years of slavery and exile, then the idea of welfare, of peace, of well-being, I think, takes on a new perspective. Because you see... God's promise of welfare, God's promise of, of peace, of completeness, may very well be more about a promise of restoration after defeat. It may very well be 
more of a promise about rebuilding after being torn down. So, what does this mean for us? Well, I believe it means something very difficult. I believe it means that, that although children of God suffer trials and tribulations, that God promises restoration and rebuilding. That's good news. But often, we hear trials and tribulations and cringe. You see, our culture in America today, and, and, and really the, the natural tendency of mankind, is to do everything to avoid trials and tribulations. And so we, we think that we can do this and do that and... and Maybe it's even a part of our brand of Christianity. We're going we're gonna to come to church every Sunday and we're going to go to Sunday school and, and we're going to pray and read our Bible so hopefully God won't let us go through a trial or tribulation. And that's not what it means to live a Christian life. That's not what it means to be a follower of Christ. It means that all of us will go through trials and tribulations but that we have a promise. We have a promise that despite the trials, despite the tribulations, despite being torn down, that God is a God of restoration. Amen. Somebody say amen. amen. Loud. Amen. Not above. I was at the ballpark yesterday. And those people were screaming and yelling so loud I had to put my hands over my ears and weep. Amen. why my voice is a little loud. I was one of those that was screaming yelling. This is something that we, I believe, need to get our perspective right. Well-being and God's promises doesn't mean that life is going to be a bowl of chairs. But it does mean that God will bring us through everything with His power, with His grace, with His mercy. Being a child of God, being a part of the church, being a part of, part of the, the, the bride of Christ does not exclude you from trials and tribulations in this life, but what it does is it includes you in the promise of God to restore you to wholeness, to restore you to completeness. His plans for you are for your well-being. Secondly, we can see that His plans aren't for harm. His plans aren't for harm. Now, we don't have to dig into this word as thoroughly because the, the meaning becomes clearly apparent when we realize that the root word for this term harm is actually the word evil. That's right. 
So harm in the English translation of this word goes back to the idea of difficulty, trial, tribulation with the purpose of it bringing evil and harm into your life. Whether the English word used is harm or some translation is disaster, some calamity, all of those things, all of those ideas, harm, disaster, calamity, they are caused by evil. They are caused by evil. Therefore, the intent of the consequences are evil. Now, this idea was illustrated very clearly in the Gospel of John when Jesus used the image of the good shepherd to expound upon his care for the people of God. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Completeness. There's an Old Testament scholar that wrote about this comparison. This comparison between the, the words shalom and the word harm that comes from the, the root of evil. And he wrote this. His plans concerning his people are always thoughts of good, of blessing. Even if he is obliged to use the rod, it is the rod not of wrath, but the Father's rod of chastisement for the temporal and eternal well-being of His children. There is not a single item of evil in God's plans for His people. Neither in their motive nor in their conception, nor their revelation, nor in their consummation. You see, we have to understand that there are trials and tribulations that bring stress, they bring maybe physical difficulties, they bring emotional pain to us that are a part of God's plan to make us better. The things that come into our life from the devil that are there for evil are not intended to build us up. They're intended to tear us down. And the difficulty that you and I have is distinguishing between the two. Is this something that God has brought upon me to teach me a lesson? Or is this something that I have brought upon myself because of my own arrogance and disobedience to God? I, I can't tell you which one. You have to know God enough and be in touch with Him enough to understand the difference. Well, what does this mean? It does not mean that God's people are shielded from hardship or misery. What it does mean is that God's plans 
are never for evil in the believer's life, but always with an eye for their well-being and their wholeness. And sometimes this is a difficult concept to understand for a culture that is almost 100% focused on the physical and material aspect of life. Folks, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have to be more concerned about the spiritual well-being of your life than the physical and material well-being. Now, both are important. But whether we want to admit it or not, one day the physical and the material aspect will be gone. And the only thing that is left is that which is eternal and spiritual. And so, when we talk about God's plan, when we examine the fact that, that His plan for the Jews exiled in Babylon is relevant to His plan for the church, for you and for me, we've got to understand that it's more than just the physical. It's more than just what you're going to do with the rest of your life. It's more than just who you're going to marry. It's more than just how many children are you going to have. It's more than just what job you're going to have and how much money you're going to have and when you're going to get to retire. It's more than just the physical. As a matter of fact, it isn't just more than the physical. More than just the physical. It's more about the spiritual. Because the spiritual is eternal. His plans for you are for well-being. His plans for you are not to harm you. And if this is true, then how do we explain all the junk that we experience? How do we explain all the stuff that we see on TV and, and read in the newspapers? This leads to the final point in the application, and here it is. Harm, harm with an evil intent to do nothing but tear you down only comes from sin. It only comes as a result of sin. First, I want to make a general observation. And then I want to focus your attention on some specifics. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, humanity has lived in a fallen and broken world. It, it is only by the good grace of God that this world is as good as it is. Because it is a fallen and broken world. Some of us may think that the things today are worse than, than they ever have been and, and things are getting worse in our country. But from the perspective of world history, things have always been bad. Always. Sin has marred this world and it will continue to mar this world until Jesus comes Again. Thank you, sir. On a more personal level, though, sin is actually the greatest threat to our well-being. 
It's the greatest threat to our well-being. And yet we don't recognize the fact that while God's plan for our life is for our well-being and not for home when, uh, and not for harm when we choose sin, then we open ourselves up to the destructive power of it. Please don't miss this point. God's plan for your life is good. It is good. But He has given all of us the ability. He has given all of us the ability to either choose His plan and His purpose or choose a path that leads to sin and ultimately to destruction. We have a choice. We can choose Him or we can choose sin. Now, now let, me, let me share something with you that, that I see all the time. I see people that claim the promises of God and then they get bitter because they have to face the consequences of their own disobedience. You can't claim the promises of God and then go live for yourself. It doesn't work. If living the Christian life was easy and didn't require total surrender and sacrifice in the face of temptations, then Jesus wouldn't have told a group of His followers, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. It takes surrender. It takes obedience. It takes sacrifice to follow God's path, His plan. And He promises that if we go down it, then we'll be good. We'll have well-being. We'll have restoration when the difficult times come. But if we choose sin, it's destruction. I want to close with this. I believe we need to get serious about living out God's plan and purpose for our lives. But folks, we can't do that unless we're serious about repenting of our sin and turning to Jesus Christ. God's plan for your life is... It's not relevant. It's not relevant to you if you're not willing to recognize sin, repent of it, and turn to Jesus. Because His plan is His plan. And as long as we're submitting ourselves to what we want to do, then His plan is irrelevant. It's there. It's good. It's eternal. But it's irrelevant. Unless you and I are willing to get serious about repenting of our sin and turning to Jesus Christ. Some of you might think, well, Pastor, don't we all sin? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. But when we fail to recognize sin, when we fail to see it in our own lives when it happens and call sin, sin, and then repent of it, 
then we're opening ourselves up to the very consequences that God's plan for us avoids. Which is harm that comes from a desire to tear down rather than to build up. Does God have a plan for you? Does He have a plan for me? Does He have a plan for us? Does He have a plan for His church? Absolutely. The question is, will you seek it? Will you find it? And will you follow it? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your love and Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You for the nature of Your plan for Your church for this local church and for these individuals. Our prayer, Lord, is that you would give us the grace and mercy to turn from the, the sin in our lives, whether it's an act of sin or an attitude of sin, whether it's a commission or an omission. Lord, we pray that you would Stir within us your spirit. Stir it. Help us to look in the mirror and ask the questions. To be honest with ourselves. To put aside pride. And to submit to you and your plan for our lives. We thank you that you've provided those plans. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.